Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to a special edition of the Mouthy IP. Today, we have our standard, always exciting guests. We have Kate Tyner, Sarah Stream, and Dr. Richard Hankins. And to help celebrate Antibiotic Awareness Week, we have a couple of special guests. We have Dr. Angela Hewitt, as well as Dr. Andrew Watkins. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So for Antibiotic Awareness Week, we have our two special guests on. Um, Would you guys like to tell our listeners a little bit about what your specialty is and what you do with antibiotic awareness? Dr. Hewlett? Sure. So I'm an infectious diseases specialist, um, and I actually specialize in the management of patients with complicated bone and joint infections. So I do what we would term orthopedic infectious diseases as my primary specialty here at uh, UNMC. Um, I actually, uh, that was my original when I took the job here, that was the intent was to actually start an orthopedic infectious diseases service. And so I um, came on here in 2009 um, and have, um, have continued to build the service. We now have an inpatient team that sees inpatients with complicated bone and joint infections. And my outpatient clinic is 100% uh, bone and joint infections, particularly prosthetic joint infections. Um, I also I sat on a couple of the panels that we'll probably talk about today um, with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, where we had discussions about antibiotic prophylaxis um, for dental procedures, and um, there's a lot of of history behind that. So I'm I'm definitely looking forward to discussing. (laughs) That's great. Thank you, Dr. Hewlett. We really appreciate your time today. And then Andrew, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I am an infectious diseases pharmacist. Uh, with the Nebraska Medical Medicine, as well as with Nebraska ASAP. Uh, I'm in a stewardship outreach role, uh, and so helping with antimicrobial stewardship implementation in long-term care settings, acute care settings, as well as outpatient settings, which, as we all know, include uh, dentistry, including uh, core element implementation and just overall improving antibiotic use kind of in those settings specifically. That's great. And as all of the dental providers out there know, antibiotic prophylaxis is something that we deal with every day and can be a little bit challenging. So we got a fun question about that that we are going to talk about today. Hi, ICAP team. As a dental provider, seeing patients with an artificial joint is pretty common. I find it hard to deal with this as the guidance has changed and some of the patient's medical providers have told them they need to have antibiotic prophylaxis for life. Can you help me understand the current guidelines and give me some tips on working with patients and other providers when it comes to antibiotic prophylaxis? So I would have like one leading question for Dr. Hewlett and Andrew in that was antibiotic prophylaxis ever indicated for like pre-procedurally in dentistry? Like what was the rationale? So I I can tell you just a little bit of history behind this. in, so for years and years and years, um, there have been obviously patients, you know, getting prosthetic joints put in. So, you know, whether those are hips or knees or, you know, um, shoulders or whatever else. 
um, those individuals sometimes get infected. And, you know, I mean, fortunately, the infection rate is actually between one to two percent for the most part, um, depending on the center and the type of joint and such. And but the problem is, is these infections, when they occur, are absolutely catastrophic for patients. And they, um, you know, are certainly life altering uh, situations. They actually are life threatening. Um, there have been some studies looking at the mortality rate associated with prosthetic joint infection and five years five-year mortality can be up to 20%, which actually is on the same line of a lot of, you know, cancers that we think about, you know, severe cancers and things like that. So 20% mortality over a five-year period. So again, these are ab absolutely, I mean, this is devastating diagnosis. And so um, the prevention of prosthetic joint infection has always been, um, you know, really key and, and, you know, people really want to do everything they can. And by people, I mean, you know, patients, surgeons, infectious disease doctors, dentists, everyone to try to prevent these infections from occurring. The problem is, is and, and sometimes um, in patients, particularly who don't have a new wound or, um, you know, recently had a prosthetic joint put in, when these joints get infected, it has to be um, a source, the source has to be bacteremia. And so these patients somehow get bacteria in their bloodstream, and then that bacteria lands in the prosthetic joint. Sometimes those patients have organisms in their blood that we would consider normal mouth flora. Now, granted, some of those organisms also can come from other places as well, um, but that, you know, essentially cause individuals to think about, should we give, um, you know, antibiotic prophylaxis to people when they go to the dentist? And especially if they're having invasive procedures um, where the mucosa is, um, you know, is manipulated, does that put someone at, at higher risk of bacteremia and subsequently a prosthetic joint infection? So that was the, the whole reasoning behind um, prescribing antibiotics for, for these, you know, these potential scenarios. The only problem is, is we don't have essentially any data, um, you know, really showing that that actually happens. And so, you know, now anecdotally, I mean, I have patients who have gone to have dental procedures done and develop a prosthetic joint infection that seems to correlate with that with, um, you know, an organism that could um, potentially or is known mouth flora. And so that situation does occur. Um, it's rare, but because these infections are so life altering and again, life threatening, um, that, that is sort of where the onus for, you know, consideration of prescribing antibiotics comes from, but we can talk about the data later or the lag thereof. Uh, but essentially that's, that's where the practice originates. So then my next question kind of leads to like, what's different now? Like, you know, and I, I, as a nurse, you know, I think to myself 15 years ago, 25 years ago, there were less people who maybe had these um, joint uh, prosthetic joint procedures, et cetera. Now you can have a young person injuring things during sports, whatever, who has a prosthetic joint their whole life. And so what, what is different in 2021 that makes us um, be more cognizant about this? Like, is it a need to give um, antibiotics before a dental procedure or not? Like, what do we know now that would tell us, let's be cautious about it? Well, I, I would say that, you know, obviously there are more people getting these joints placed. Um, you know, population is um, people are living longer, you know, so these joints and they can be, these joints are, you know, um, are life um, really mobility and, and life altering, um, you know, procedures in themselves, you know, having a prosthetic joint put in can really change, um, you know, change people's mobility status and allow them to do things that they couldn't do before. And, um, and because people are living longer, we definitely are seeing a lot more of these joints put in, um, you know, and again, whether that's a hip or knee or shoulder or whatever, um, you know, 
I mean, what's different in 2021? There are more people out there with these joints. Um, there's also a lot of concern uh, as far as medical legal issues, you know, whether people can be sued one way or the other for either, you know, prescribing an antibiotic that ha and having an adverse reaction from that antibiotic, or, you know, again, um, having one of these catastrophic infections occur and, um, and, and being, you know, being sued because there, someone thinks that maybe that was related to dentistry. And in that case, you know, maybe antibiotics should have been provided. So there's a lot of concerns about that for sure. I think just in the real world, living in the real world, we have to, you know, to think about those things. Um, but I, you know, just the sheer numbers of people who have prosthetic joints uh, walking around, you know, is, is different now than it was say, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, and I would add to that that another difference, at least from my perspective in 2021, is the increased focus on antimicrobial resistance and the threat that that really poses to, to patients on a day-to-day -day basis. And whereas, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there wasn't as big of a focus, you know, it was obviously still people were aware of this, but not something that they maybe thought about as frequently. Uh, now, very much more so, there's a focus and an emphasis on that in all settings, not just in the inpatient setting, but also going to those outpatient clinics and dental offices and things that has really driven the discussions to cause changes in guidelines and recommendations in that arena. So I'll get scientific on you, um, Andrew, then I'll let some other people have a chance to talk. I'm sorry. So with that, you know, the audience that we are talking to, dental professionals, antimicrobial resistance might be very new to them. And so let's like unpack that a little bit of what organisms are we talking about? And um, maybe you could even give an example of a common drug used for preventative measures that really doesn't cover things anymore. So could you kind of unpack resistance and maybe some of the drugs um, and tell us more about it? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the more antibiotics you use, the more frequently they are used, the more likely bacteria are to develop resistance mechanisms over time. Um, and so, you know, as we are seeing more and more prescriptions that patient that accumulates over time and you can have organisms that have always kind of been around become more resistant, or you can have uh, development of other secondary infections such as Clostridioides difficile, which, you know, everybody's aware of CDI and the impact it has there, you know, I think a quarter of a million cases of C. diff infections on any given year. Um, and, you know, some of the antibiotics that are used as prophylaxis uh, can have really, really increased risk of causing C. diff. In particular, uh, you know, clindamycin in patients who are penicillin allergic, who, you know, maybe given clindamycin, it carries, uh, I believe, like a 16-timed increased risk of developing C. diff, which, you know, is also associated with, you know, a lot of morbidity, morbidity um, as well as significant healthcare costs. And so that Andrew, would be when you say when you say 16 times risk, what is that compared to? Compared to uh, I believe placebo, uh, actually. So our, oh, I'd actually have to go look at that study to see if it's compared to placebo or compared to a standard comparator of antibiotics. But I believe it's actually just compared to placebo. So 16 times uh -huh. increased risk of developing uh, C. diff over, you know, with if you were to not give clindamycin in the study I'm specifically thinking of. And so it's one that can be used in these dental settings uh, and can really have a significant impact on the development of C. diff uh, in these patients. So then so to follow up on that, Andrew, oh, sorry, Kate. Well, I think it's even worth unpacking C. diff a little bit. We talked about antimicrobial resistance. That is like drugs that if we prescribe them, they might not even work because the bacteria are resistant to that drug. That's a very frightening prospect. 
C. diff is its own very frightening thing. And I think it's actually, we're recording this during C. diff awareness week. And so I think it's worth maybe calling out C. diff a little bit. And I'll just relate, um, you know, for the people who are on the call who are maybe not very familiar with that, C. diff is, um, it's a terrible diarrheal disease that's brought on by when the antibiotics clear out the good flora from your gut. And it's not just an inconvenience to people. C. diff is a really awful infection and it can be very difficult to treat. And I'll just, I'll, I'll relate a personal friend of mine who was hospitalized for a surgical procedure. She's penicillin, penicillin allergic. So she was on clindamycin and it delayed her discharge from the hospital for days because she had this terrible diarrhea illness. Her blood pressure dropped so much because she was losing so much fluid. She couldn't be discharged. You know, she couldn't get up and rehab. She couldn't do any of these things. And this is a, a middle-aged woman who is otherwise pretty healthy, you know, went in for an elective procedure. So C. diff, I think it, it might be easy if, if you're not used to seeing it every day. Um, and a lot of the people on this call uh, have contact with the in, inpatient world like I used to that it, it can be a debilitating disease, it's terrible. Um, and so this is a really bad um, side effect of some commonly used drugs. Completely agree. And then back to your original point of other organisms that could become resistant. You know, one example would be like Viridans group strep, which, you know, historically has had really great susceptibility to some of our beta-lactams and still has good, very good susceptibility. But I mean, they were seeing increasing resistance to some of these beta-lactam agents, some of our core uh, used agents, even in some of the strep species that, you know, is concerning for sure when you've relied upon a class of antibiotics that are narrow spectrum and consistently uh, active for years and years, and you're starting to see trends that uh, may not be uh, as susceptible moving forward. One of the things that Kate touched on that I, I want to mention um, as we're talking about antibiotics and uh, treatments is the idea of allergies. And when we're using, using second line therapies, um, not only are they not as effective, have more side effects, um, but often we're using them and the people aren't necessarily even allergic to them. And we think that we're allergic to them. And um, I just point out allergies resolve over time and so often if we had an allergy when we were five or six, there's always the chance we don't necessarily have that allergy anymore. Um, and so when we continue to think that we're allergic to something and therefore taking second, third line therapy, second or third line therapies, we're taking something that isn't as effective, but also has more side effects um, when we don't necessarily need to. And so I in a lot of these uh, elective cases, I always recommend that people have their allergies evaluated um, just so we're avoiding uh, utilizing therapies that we don't necessarily need, but put us at increased risk. How would a person do that, Dr. Hankins? Like your, your regular patient, say you oh. exist and you encounter this patient who says yeah. they're gluten and allergic, what would they do to evaluate it? I would have someone go in and see an allergist. Uh, and allergists can do skin testing to say you are no longer uh, penicillin allergic and hopefully remove that off of their chart so that everyone doesn't continue believing that someone's uh, penicillin allergic. Yeah. And even, even on a more, um, you know, I guess a, a lower level, even the clinician there in front of the patient can do some assessment of the allergy, not to the extent of a penicillin skin test, but just questioning what is the allergy? When did it occur? 
you know, what was the reaction that occurred? Uh, and then also just being aware and, you know, keeping somewhat up to date on allergy guidance and when you can still get away with using an agent that's not one of those third line agents, but you can, you know, if you have just a penicillin allergy, you could still probably use a cephalosporin and like a, you know, cephalexin or something because of the difference in side chains and just at least being abreast of the knowledge and the, the literature we have out on what those cross reactivities are. So maybe in the show notes, Andrew, um, being abreast of that literature, maybe you could send us some of your favorite, most recent guidance that um, could be available to some of the dentists who would encounter this. Would love to. I'll do that. There's actually some really nice studies on this out of the Mayo Clinic um, where their group looked at individuals that came in and, um, and said that they were allergic to penicillin. Um, and then they actually uh, sent those individuals for Aller to an allergy specialist for testing. And the vast majority of the, those individuals actually were, um, were, were, fine, were not allergic to penicillin. And a lot of these were um, like what was described earlier, like a childhood, you know, my mom told me that I had, you know, a rash when I was a, a baby or, you know, something like that. But, but I totally agree with Andrew in that um, a lot of these patients, I, and I do this all the time in my practice, um, if they say they're allergic to penicillin, I start asking some questions and generally it's, well, you know, what happened to you with that, um, with that allergy? And sometimes it's a rash, or again, my mom told me I was allergic or things like that. And then after that, then I start asking about what drugs they have tolerated in the past. And a lot of times patients that say, I have a penicillin allergy have taken amoxicillin or, um, you know, um, sometimes I use, I use the trade names as well, like augment and have, have you ever taken augment before, you know, things like that. And a lot of patients will say yes. And I do totally fine with those. And so in actuality, um, it's likely that, um, they either never had an allergy to begin with, or they had an allergy and eventually outgrew it. Um, like uh, Dr. Hankins mentioned. So, um, so I think that's really important. And then we actually have a routine practice here where if a patient is going to have a prosthetic joint put in, so an elective surgery, um, if they do say that they're allergic to penicillin, we actually do refer them to allergy so that they can actually have testing because again, those second line drugs, um, are really not, you know, not preferable. And we do give a lot of, um, you know, a lot of say cefazolin to patients who have a, a penicillin allergy and it's very, very well tolerated. And so, you know, I think um, in the end, just kind of assessing the patient and talking with the patient about their, you know, their uh, history of allergy and then potentially even referring them for actual testing can really be really important because you want to get them, if they, if an antibiotic is, is indicated, you want to make sure and get them the right antibiotic um, so that you can do your best to try to prevent these, these infections. So as a, a clinical dental provider, I know over the past years, it's been really hard to keep up with the current guidance on antibiotic prophylaxis. You know, like first it's indicated for everybody with prosthetic joints and heart issues, and then they kind of backed away and then they kind of re-recommended it. So as of November, 2021, what are the current recommendations for that? Why? I may want to start by just giving just a, a really brief history of this, just for the folks on um, that are listening who may not kind of be aware of where this where this came from. I mentioned earlier about why people are interested in giving antibiotic prophylaxis, but what happened is there was actually a statement issued by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, um, and it was gosh uh, early oh I don't know maybe 2010 or something something around that time that was essentially just a one pager that said, um, you know, these are horrible infections and we should give antibiotics prior to dental procedures. And there, there was no literature citing, there was no expert paper. It was like essentially the, an opinion piece. And so when that happened, a lot of, a lot of people, um, infectious disease docs, um, you know, dentists and, and others just basically said, well, where, where did this come from? And what's the actual literature that 
you know, that we're citing here when we're saying we should be giving antibiotics to everyone. And so in 2012, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons actually did convene um, a, an expert panel that consisted of orthopedic surgeons, of dentists, of infectious disease uh, specialists. And I was actually there representing the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America at the time um, because of this situation. Like, you know, we want to make sure that you know, that if we are prescribing antibiotics, that we're thinking about resistance, that we're thinking about the consequences of overprescribing antibiotics as well. Um, and interestingly, I mean, that, that was, the meeting took place over a couple of days, very interesting process, lots of different opinions, um, you know, a very exhaustive literature review, but in all honesty, uh, there really just wasn't anything there. I mean, there were no, um, you know, kind of, um, very high quality papers to really base any recommendations on. There were definitely some papers looking at, at bacteremia and the fact that, you know, sometimes after dental work, bacteremias result, but then we really couldn't make that jump into do those bacteremias actually go on to cause prosthetic joint infection or do they not? There, there really wasn't a whole lot, a whole lot there to make any recommendations on. And so because we knew this was kind of a ubiquitous practice and that people were really giving antibiotics um, essentially for anyone that had a prosthetic joint at the time, the, the final um, the final statement, one of the statements was really, oh, I don't know, for those of us on the panel was very frustrating to say something like this, but I, I think the, the actual terminology was the practitioner might consider discontinuing the practice of routinely prescribing prophylactic antibiotics for patients with um, hip and knee joint implants that are undergoing dental procedures. And that was a really wishy-washy statement, but the problem is there was really nothing to base it on. And so that was very, um, like I said, frustrating for those of us on the panel, frustrating for everyone out there who, you know, didn't really get a lot out of those guidelines in spite of two days of a bunch of people coming together to talk about them. And so then fast forward to 2016, the, that same organization, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons actually sought to create some sort of what they call an appropriate use criteria or AUC, um, document where they look at expert consensus, um, where, the evidence is lacking, which fit really well with this, this situation. And so this is a decision support tool, um, which we can provide a link for. Essentially what they did, and this was another interesting process, they uh, sent out to those of us on the panel, as well as some, some others, they sent out, I think it was over 60 or 70 clinical scenarios. And they things like, you know, the patient is immunosuppressed or the patient has uncontrolled diabetes or they have a history of prosthetic joint infection. And when did they, um, what type of dental procedure were they having? What was the timing of their, their prosthetic implant? You know, was it recent? Was it within a year or after a year? Things like that. And then we sort of ranked based on expert consensus, what, um, which patients we would recommend antibiotics for. And so um, essentially what, what was generated from that was this AUC um, which actually is something that you can type in, in you know, uh, if you can type in your clinical scenarios on um, the, um, on their website and say, you know, the patient is immunosuppressed or the patient has, you know, uncontrolled diabetes or whatever. And then it's ranked as, a, you know, antibiotics are appropriate for the indication provided or maybe appropriate or rarely appropriate, totally based on that input. And so, um, so that was something that was generated in, in 2016 to really try to help people to make this decision. Um, but, but again, you know, there's still a lot that's unknown and, and because, you know, because there really isn't any, any literature backing or significant high quality studies, uh, that's why we, we're really left with a lot of expert consensus, which is unfortunate. So really then antibiotic prophylaxis should not be a one size fits all. Absolutely not. No, I, I think, you know, do, does everyone with a joint prosthesis need 
dental prophylaxis? Absolutely not. I mean, like, you know, people that have had their joints in for, you know, several years, they're well fixed, they're doing well, they don't have any of these, like, you know, they're not a have significant immunosuppression or uncontrolled diabetes or a history of prosthetic joint infection in the past or things like that, that would potentially maybe put them at higher risk for having, having a, an infection related to dentistry. You know, I, I mean, at most, most people with prosthetic joints would fall in the category of, you know, rarely appropriate for, you know, for antibiotic administration. And so I definitely tell my patients um, who just have, you know, a hip or a knee or whatever, and they're doing fine. No, they don't need antibiotic prophylaxis, but they're, the problem is, is then there are this very small subset of patients who, you know, potentially maybe would benefit from prophylaxis, but we really don't even know that. Um, but because of the sort of risk versus benefit assessment, you know, potentially prophylaxis may be indicated. But again, that even that, um, just very, very, it's difficult to make that decision, uh, but it really is a decision that should be made, not one-sided. It should be made in consultation with the dentist, um, with the orthopedic surgeon, with the infectious disease doc, if they're, um, if there's someone involved and, um, and with the patient for sure. So um, Dr. Hewlett had recommended a really nice tool. And so I'm playing with that tool as we're having the conversation. So I was expecting like a literature review or like something I would read. This is a tool that people can check boxes and it will help them make decisions in the moment. One of the questions on here um, is immunocompromised status. And so this is something um, that as a nurse, I struggle with because, you know, there's lots of different definitions of immunocompromised status. So just for people who are playing with this tool in real time, um, tell us a little bit more about when you're making um, a judgment call about immunosuppression, what are some factors you guys consider? Kate, I'd say you're not the only one that struggles with the definition of what is immunosuppressed. Um, so I'd say the line does move on what is immunosuppressed based on what different people say. Um, factors that I use, and I'm very interested to hear what Dr. Watkins, Dr. Hewlett have to say about this. Does someone have a transplant um, that's taking immunosuppression? Um, does someone have uh, HIV, so acquired immunodeficiencies? Does someone have some sort of other um, inborn immunosuppression, whether it's common variable immunodeficiency, whether chronic granulomatous disease, or some sort of inborn disease, um, or uh, they're on chemotherapy due to um, a neoplasm cancer, they have a hematologic malignancy. Um, so those are some of the things that I think about uh, as I'm thinking about is someone immunosuppressed. I think where we see a lot of gray area is where people are on large amounts of steroids. And so uh, how much steroids for how long um, is it steroids alone or is it steroids along with another agent? And so I feel like um, steroids with another agent, I would commonly say is immunosuppressed. So if someone has like uh, a rheumatologic disorder and they're on um, immunosuppression, I would consider that. Uh, if someone has inflammatory bowel disease, I would commonly consider that to be immunosuppressed. But if someone's only taking steroids for uh, like COPD, um, I think we get into kind of a gray area on if that's immunosuppressed. And on the same tool, Sarah, I'll put you on the spot too. Um, the first question has to do with the planned dental procedure. So it, it breaks up, I don't know if you're looking at the tool live too, Sarah, but it breaks things up in things that manipulate 
gingival or periapical tissues or perforate the mucosa? Like, are there some things that would never meet that category? Like, can we sort out, like there's some types of appointments where, nope, that doesn't even meet this sniff test at all. So really um, in most dental procedures, there is the possibility that you will have a perforation of gingival tissue, even if it's, um, it's not planned. So, um, you know, if you're doing a, a filling, a lot of times the matrix band can, um, can kind of cut that gingival tissue and that would be an opening into the bloodstream. Um, even just taking x-rays, if somebody has, uh, you know, gingivitis and their gums bleed easily, those x-ray films can have sharp edges and, you know, puncture your gum tissue, even though it's not intended. So there are procedures that are more invasive than others. Crown and bridge is one that will go subgingively. Um, anything uh, endodontically related usually has some sort of access into the bloodstream. Um, and as far as like restorative procedures go, if, um, if it's simply like an occlusal or an incisal filling that is nowhere near that gingival tissue, there's the possibility that you won't, but you know, you have a lot of sharp instruments in that patient's mouth. And if they jump or jerk, there's always that possibility. So then maybe like my, like to put this into perspective, you know, that the main thing is I feel like when people, the hardest thing about this, when somebody, when I go to the dentist, if I've had a joint replacement, the person who's ordering me to take medicine is not the person who's doing my mouth procedure. And so this is, I think like kind of a decision point, like what resources would dental practitioners have in helping with this? Is it reasonable to always expect that the patient's orthopedist or heart doctor would do that prescribing? How do, what do so you? I'm just going to expand on that a little bit, Kate. So um, a lot of times when we have those patients come in, um, sometimes their orthopedic surgeon or their general practitioner, they're like, you need antibiotics, but your dentist is going to prescribe them for you. I'm not gonna have anything to do with it. Sometimes those practitioners are like, I want to be able to prescribe it and oversee what's going on, which is great. Um, and sometimes those practitioners will say something like, well, you need to be on this for life for all of your dental procedures. And then the patient brings that information into us at the dental office. And, you know, we may come back with, well, recommendations say you don't need this now. Well, then they feel like we are, we're not providing the care that they need because of their joint replacement. So I think there's a lot of variability in that. Um, and I think that it would be really helpful to talk about maybe some best practices. Yeah, I would say best practices, you know, start with setting patient expectations. And so the situation you described, Sarah, is a great example of, you know, the, the dentist office communicating with the patients that, you know, regardless of what your provider's recommendation may have been, this is not actually, you know, per our recommendations, ADA recommendations and other organizations, this is not a situation in which antibiotics are needed or are proven to show, you know, have benefit. Uh, and so it's really important that education piece and the CDC has some great resources that I'll send uh, for the show notes as far you know, situations and how to convey that to patients. And as far as other best practices, uh, the ADA recommends that it is uh, most appropriate 
that the orthopedic surgeon is the one who writes that prescription for the antibiotic. And I know it's, it's difficult to be caught in a situation where the patient comes to you and you're the one doing the procedure and that you feel like you have to because the patient asked and because their provider told you that that's what they wanted. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, you know, the person with the prescription pad or clicking the, the electronic signature is the one who's prescribing the antibiotic. And it's really important to make sure before you send an order that you're not doing it based off of external pressures, but because it's actually a, a evidence-backed guidance recommendation. Yeah, and just to reiterate the importance of um, this being a multidisciplinary eff, you know, effort, I, I, I do feel like, yeah, I mean, if, if there's if there's doubt, um, if the surgeon has not written the prescription, the dentist isn't isn't sure, or um, you know, or doesn't feel like it's indicated, then that really should be a conversation, um, you know, between between because this is you know dentistry. I mean, this is something you know we all go get our teeth cleaned, or hopefully we do, um, you know, on a on a, reg on a regular <laughs> basis. And so this is not something you know people that have knees and hips, you know, this this will be an ongoing um, situation. And so really it would be beneficial to all parties involved, including the patient, um, to really have that, have that discussion and settle out, you know, and there may be a compelling reason why the orthopedic surgeon says, hey, you know, this patient had a history of prosthetic joint infection. And if they, um, you know, it was with dental flora and it occurred, you know, post um, some sort of dental work and, you know, they have, or they're immunosuppressed or they have all of this. So there may be some really compelling sort of risk versus benefit assessment um, that occurred in consultation with, you know, with that patient that, yeah, that needs to, needs to be out there. And so, or there may not be that. And in that case, maybe that conversation needs to go like this patient's doing well, they had their joint put in several years ago. Um, you know, they're not immunosuppressed. They don't have any of these criteria and, um, and, or maybe even I use that, that appropriate use criteria tool from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And it looks like that this patient, you know, is not, doesn't fit any of those criteria. So again, I think that conversation is just really important because this will be an ongoing issue and, um, and it'll be important to document that and going forward to make sure we're doing the right thing for the patient. And I can, being the non-healthcare provider on the, on this podcast, uh, uh, listening to this conversation, not being able to add much because a uh, very technical conversation and it's um, interesting, um, my thoughts are on the patient side and wondering um, as, as each of you have debated the merits and the pros and the cons from a patient perspective, the confusion that some might have um, and, you know, dare I say, even the, the ignorance um, because they don't know what questions to ask. They don't know who to listen to. And with from what I understand, the changing of it over time, where it may have been good for this visit, it may not be appropriate for the next visit. And so to have this uh, continuing conversation and the need to reevaluate uh, it, it I'm, I'm just thinking from a patient perspective, it, it could be somewhat frustrating and confusing. I think that's a very good point, Dan. And um, I just want to remind all the providers out there how important it is to get an updated health history every time they come into the office. Something could have changed. Um, I also want to point out that, you know, some patients may not be very good at remembering their health history or what medications they're on. And some don't always bring in that medication list. So, you know, consulting their surgeon or their general provider um, before you're prescribing anything is a good idea. 
And so maybe something that I would add to this, and Sarah, you're far more aware of like day-to-day practice than I am, but, you know, as being part of assessments, you know, across the state for years now, I think that that like a simple point that I would make is make sure that the conversation's happening with the right professional. You know, like I would advise people on this call, it's not really fair for the front desk person, the receptionist, um, to have to have this conversation with the client. You know, you really want, this is really a provider to provider decision. You know, there could be a script for that front desk person of, you know, this is going to take us, you know, like we can make the appointment, but the dentist is going to call your surgeon or something like that and setting up reasonable expectations. It's something that will go far better if the dentist explains this to the patient, not the receptionist. Is that a reasonable direction to put in? Yes. Um, And I will also point out that even some of the other clinical staff, like dental assistants and hygienists, you know, we are not, it's not within our scope of practice to make those decisions at all, but we can set up that conversation for the dentist. You know, we notice that you've had this short replacement when the provider comes in, we're going to talk about what your options are and what current recommendations are. And, you know, can I get the contact information for your surgeon so we can get a hold of them? Um, you know, there are things that we can do to make it a little bit easier. And like Andrew said, kind of manage those expectations for the patient. Right. That a a person on a patient coming in to see their dentist doesn't necessarily know that the hygienist can't write a prescription. Right. I think that that's a fair, like setting reasonable expectations of who does what I think is really nice. We see that in clinic settings too. Is this person a nurse? Are they not? Um, who, who can do that decision is really important. So thank you for setting that up, Sarah. Yeah. One, one of the other things I wanted to touch on that I thought Dan laid out really well was this Dan said, things change from visit to visit. And Sarah, I think you looked at that and said, oh pa- yeah, the patients change from visit to visit. But something else I'd like to point out that I feel like has come up a lot in the past year or two is the science changes from visit to visit. And as Dr. Hewlett pointed out, we don't have a lot of information on this. And so the science could change from visit to visit. And the recommendation on getting prophylaxis could change from visit to visit based on what we're continuing to learn about this. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, patients can be placed on immunosuppressive medicines that may influence a decision, um, particularly our, our patient population with prosthetic joints. They often um, have diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and are treated with, you know, the TNF inhibitors or the kind of, you know, more severely, um, uh, you know, immunosuppressing meds and such. And so these things though can, can come up obviously there, you know, and can happen in between visits. Um, that being said, also history of infection, you know, infections can happen. There are just, there's so many things that can happen either, either with the guidelines or with, you know, medical literature, what's out there, um, as well as just on the patient specific level. And I, I totally agree with Dan's comments. I, I will say, um, pa- this is very confusing for patients. It's confusing for us, much less for patients who may not really, um, be, you know, aware of the, if they haven't really been, um, been discussing this with their dentist or with their uh, orthopedic surgeon or infectious disease doc, they really, may not understand the implications of prosthetic joint infection or the implications of overprescribing antibiotics and the fact that, um, you know, the dentist actually on some of these panels I was on, they have definitely some stories about patients who develop C. diff after, you know, receiving um, antibiotics as dental prophylaxis or patients who anaphylaxed in the, in the dental chair. I, I heard a couple of stories like that at this panel discussion. So, you know, antibiotics are something we really have to carefully consider before we, you know, we prescribe those, especially, um, 
for an indication that may or may not be, um, you know, be necessary. And, and that this falls into that category. Again, does, you know, everybody with a joint implant need a prosthetic, need antibiotics before dentistry? Absolutely not. We just have to keep remembering that. Um, but again, subset of, of patients, maybe it would be reasonable. And I do think that that um, AUC tool that we can share um, is helpful for people to kind of, for particular for providers to really look and You'll notice that if you type in, um, you know, a few things in there, you can have controlled diabetes, well-controlled diabetes. You can have, um, you know, a dental procedure that actually is manipulating mucosa, and it says rarely necessary. So antibiotics are rarely necessary in that scenario. Um, but if you click on, you know, out of control diabetes and immunosuppression and history of prosthetic joint infection, then it will say maybe that would be reasonable to prescribe antibiotics. And again, that's all based on, um, on expert uh, consensus. But in the lack of, you know, <laughs> because we don't have the, the evidence to support it, that's really all we have now, unfortunately. I know Kate said she was playing around with the tool and I was doing the same to try to see when expert guide or expert recommendations would uh, swing from rarely would provide prophylaxis to maybe beneficial to, oh yeah, you should probably do that. Yeah, it's a very cool tool to play with. I'm excited to get like it out to everybody. It looks like Dr. Hewlett provided another uh, resource for the show notes, and that is a decision tree um, regarding immunosuppression. And so that using those things in conjunction, I feel like we've provided like some great new tools um, in this arena. So thank you guys. Yeah. So I do have, I have one more question before we end the show. Um, I know that we have all seen patients who maybe aren't that great at going in to get seen. So, you know, if we had a patient who maybe hadn't been to the dentist in 10 years and their, um, their prosthetic joint replacement was 15 years ago and they don't have a primary care doctor right now, where would be a good place to start that conversation with another provider to determine whether or not you were going to prescribe antibiotics? I mean, in that scenario, I would say that even if the prosthetic joint was placed 15 years ago, um, the orthopedic surgeon still typically either periodically follows the patient or there would be someone available to discuss the clinical scenario. Um, and so I still, and, and that, that, this is an important decision. And again, for, especially for someone, um, well, someone like this, like in that scenario where they're coming back into dental care, there's a chance that they hopefully will continue, um, you know, continue um, uh, their dental care over an a routine basis following this. And so that's an important uh, question to address. And so I would advise the patients go ahead and schedule a consultation with their orthopedic surgeon or someone, you know, within that group or something to really assess their, um, you know, their risk for this. Um, another thing just to point out, and this was, I think, very evident on these expert panels that I participated in, you know, we want people to go to the dentist. We want people to have good oral hygiene for lots of reasons. But, um, but number one is we, we don't want that scenario where someone doesn't go to a dentist uh, or they go in very infrequently and then end up having to have more manipulation and more procedures and, you know, things like that. When they go, we want people to go, um, you know, every um, six months or as indicated and have, you know, make sure that they're trying to avoid the development of gum disease or development of, you know, of um, dental pathology that would necessitate these invasive procedures. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we, that was a, there was a big push for that, particularly from the dentist on the panel and understandably, because we want people to get appropriate dental care because, you know, in the long run, um, that will avoid some of these more invasive procedures that would probably create a higher risk of bacteremia and risk to the, to the implant. Awesome. That's great advice. 
great conversation all. We want to thank, of course, our uh, standard weekly contributors, uh, Sarah Stream, Kate Tyner, and Dr. Richard Hankins. And we especially want to thank our two esteemed guests, Dr. Angela Hewitt and Dr. Andrew Watkins. Thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode, and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.